Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, January 24th by Pastor Rod Heppel. This is the fourth sermon in our series entitled The Joy of the Lord, the Book of Philippians. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Hello, Sardis Fellowship. I'm so grateful that you've chosen to watch our service today and each week. It's the way in which we can still gather around our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ and to worship him together, even though we're not in the same room. It's the way in which we can still be a part of our local church family and to continue to strive towards Jesus and to be faithful disciples. So keep it up and keep on encouraging one another. Um, You know, make that phone call this week or send a text or ring a doorbell and drop off that I'm thinking of you gift. Or you can join in on one of the Zoom groups. Uh, You can pray together for sure. We need prayer for Afternoon Adventures, which is finding its way forward and starting up this week at Evans Elementary. So pray for one another. Pray for the local church, uh, because we still are the church. One author puts it like this. The church is, the church does what it is, and the church organizes what it does. So, So let's keep doing that. Let's keep being the church and let's keep finding ways to organize ourselves uh, around what Christ has called us to do, even while we have these restrictions on. You can join us tomorrow for a day of prayer and fasting as we seek God to do uh, his work on our behalf. You can join us for a Zoom discussion time following the sermon. There's other ways too. There's a variety of Bible studies right now that are starting up. Most of them, or all of them, are on Zoom, except for the youth ones that can still meet in person. But there's young adults on Monday. Tuesday youth is a Zoom. Uh, Wednesday youth is in person, which is allowed by by Dr. Bonnie Henry. There's also Sardis Kids online each week with a packet of material each month that goes out. And Sardis Primetime is encouraging seniors to adopt families and families to adopt seniors to just have a bit of mutual encouragement uh, intergenerationally in our church. We have a ladies' phone call ministry. Each week they call seniors. And we need people this month to deliver the new daily breads that are coming out to our shut-ins. We also have a Zoom prayer meeting every Sunday night at 7 o'clock that Eugene Brela is leading. And don't miss watching the memorial service this Wednesday at 2 p.m. to remember our dear brother Jack Reams, a person who selflessly gave of his time and energy and gifts to serve this church family. And if you can't join us at 2 o'clock, it will be posted on our website that you can watch later on. And also be remembering Marlene Reams in your prayers this week. So there's lots of ways in which the church can still be the church. We will get through this time. And we will even find amazing God moments right in the middle of COVID if we're willing to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and how it is that he's asking us to love our neighbors and to shine the light of Christ. You know, I'm hoping that we will be able to say, along with the Apostle Paul as he did in Philippians here, that what has happened to us has actually served to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the end of my pep talk. Now let's get into our sermon for today. We're in Philippians chapter 2, and it's a pretty amazing passage of scripture. It might even be your favorite passage of scripture. It's on humility as it relates to unity. Now how would you define someone who's humble? Like, what are the characteristics that lead you to think when you see a person, now that's a humble person? Is a a person born humble or do they learn to be humble? Because we often say things like they were born into humble circumstances or they live in a humble home. But is it just economics that defines what humility is? Of course, we know that it's not. It's more than that. But what makes a person humble? According to Numbers 12, 
verse 3, Moses was the most humble person on the face of the earth. But then again, he probably wrote it. <laughs> uh, it's like that person who says, my greatest strength is my humility. Seriously, though, whatever the case is about who wrote Numbers 12, verse 3, Moses truly was an example of a person who was humble. Now, I believe that this issue of pride is bound up in the human heart. And if we don't identify it for what it really is, we just, by nature, give it permission to wreak havoc in our lives. Or maybe I should say, to just wreak. Now, here's a question to ponder. How come pride is so easy to spot in someone else and so hard to spot in ourselves? You see, the problem of pride was in the church at Philippi, and Paul is going to instruct them that humility is the key to unity. Where pride destroys unity, humility restores it. Now, Philippians 2 is both well-known and very much loved by many people, myself included. In fact, Philippians 2, 1 to 4, are some of the verses that I like to read at a wedding ceremony because it speaks to the kind of attitude of heart that you need to have in order to have a really good marriage relationship. Mainly this idea of not looking only to your own interest, but also to the interest of the other. Uh, so, you know, when I read this passage at weddings, I'm well aware that Paul's talking primarily to the church and how we are to relate to each other in community. But the logic or the logical connection is that if that's the expectation of how we should relate within the church, well, then how much more so in this intimate marriage relationship? Here's what I didn't take into consideration when I would share these words at a wedding from Philippians 2. And that's the context in which Paul wrote them. I would kind of glance over the therefore that's found in chapter 2, verse 1. And I would get right into verses 3 and 4 that's talking about humility. Now, this can easily happen to us because in our English Bibles, we will notice that there are chapter divisions and verse divisions. Now, these divisions were not in the original letter. It was just a letter that was written, right? No numbers there. But they've been placed there to help us out so that we're able to, you know, find our spot when we're sharing with each other or studying the Bible. So what can easily happen is that we miss the flow of thought that the author has because we break it up in our mind based on those chapter divisions or verse divisions. Now, Philippians 2, 1 to 11 is directly connected to what Paul has just been saying at the end of chapter 1, which we looked at last Sunday. Mainly, his concern was about unity and the oneness that they had in their fellowship. It was being disrupted, and then it kept them from sharing the faith of the gospel. The unity of this church family was at stake, and Paul is deeply concerned about it. He knows what Jesus taught about the oneness that we are to have in Christ and how that affects our testimony. Jesus said to his first followers, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Paul is in prison, he's in Rome, and he writes this letter to the church in Philippi. And he's warning them to stand as one and to not be divided. But we're not 100% sure exactly what the issue was that was creating the division in the church. It seems pretty evident from the letter that there were two kinds of pressure points going on. Uh, something that was coming from the outside and a division on the inside, or a disagreement on the inside. Now, these two could be related. It could be that the outside pressure was causing a disagreement on the inside. But whatever the case might be, at the forefront of Paul's mind, when he writes these words in chapter 2, is the fact that this church family is being divided, and it ruins the unity uh, that they share in Christ and their ability to share the faith of the gospel. That's verse 27 of chapter 1. Now, this disunity breaks Paul's hearts. He knows, one, that it wrecks the testimony of Christ, but two, he loves these people. 
I mean, his heart is genuinely breaking when he thinks about these people he loves being on opposite sides to each other. Now, we know this feeling. We've seen it happen in family relationships, in friendship relationships, or in the church. No one ever wins, and we all feel the hurt. Now, in a much less intimate context, I remember a division between two radio talk show hosts here in Vancouver on CKNW. Happened back in the mid-1990s. And I think it's fair to say it was Bill Good and Rafe Mayer, and maybe you remember those two uh, radio show hosts. Now, they were two pretty prominent voices in Vancouver at the time, and they got themselves into quite a squabble over something, and they chose to take it out on each other on their individual call-in radio programs. So it went on for a couple of months. They took pot shots at each other and um, at each other's viewpoint, and they made the other person kind of sound stupid for the viewpoint that they had. And to be quite honest, it was embarrassing for us as listeners to actually be listening to it. One day a person called in and he said to Bill Good, you know that most of your listeners also listen to Rafe Mayer and that we respect both of your opinions. So why don't you walk down the hall, open race door, sit down and have a respectful conversation, work this thing out between the two of you so that we can all get back to enjoying your programs again. You know, there was a moment of silence on Bill Good's end. And then he said, with a bit of humility in his voice, thank you, I think I may just go and do that. Now, the investment in Paul's heart for these people was much greater than a radio audience listening into two talk show hosts who aren't getting along. But we get the idea. We know how it hurts when there's disagreement between people that we love. Such a sharp disagreement that they're not talking to each other or they're saying hurtful words. Now that's what's happening in Philippi and that's why Paul writes these words in Philippians 2. Now verses 1 to 4 say this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, you'll see the word if being used here a number of times. Uh, it's not really calling into question whether they have or have not experienced this. It's essentially saying because. Because you've experienced this, then you should act like this. So Paul is saying, because you have been encouraged by being united in Christ, because you have experienced this love from Christ and your love for one another because of that, and because you know the bond that you share of the Holy Spirit and his presence with you, because you have experienced tenderness and compassion and fellowship, Paul says, therefore, be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, which means to have the same oneness of purpose, which Paul's already outlined for them in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, that your, one, or your like-mindedness, your oneness of standing firm in the one spirit, your like-mindedness by striving together for the faith of the gospel, this is how Paul wants them to be like-minded. Now, of course, this can cause for us a little bit of confusion because it may sound like he's saying that we have to view everything exactly the same or else we're not going to have unity. But, of course, that's not what he's saying. And you know that that's actually impossible this side of heaven. 
But what he is saying is that your unity is a mutual experience that you have shared by being saved by Jesus Christ. And that you've mutually experienced encouragement, comfort, the presence of the Spirit in your lives. You, you all have this. And don't lose sight of it. Whatever is causing you right now to be at odds, it does not outweigh the oneness in Jesus Christ that you know that you have. And that oneness is of purpose to continue to share that gospel with others. Just like there's great diversity with gifting in the body but one head, Paul says you have one purpose. And Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And we can't allow selfishness and selfish ambition to take over. We need to say yes to him. So Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, you've let pride come into your fellowship, selfish ambition and empty conceit. And you have to combat that by exercising humility, by valuing others above yourselves, by considering their needs even ahead of your own. Now, this kind of thinking doesn't come naturally to us. Our flesh doesn't produce humility. Humility comes from yielding our hearts to the Holy Spirit. Now, remember the context of this church in Philippi, uh, that they were Roman citizens in a Roman colony, and they were very proud of their Roman citizenship. They were a cut above others. Their identity would have been somehow shaped by the values of being Roman. Uh, like strength and self-promotion. In Roman thinking, humility was equated with weakness of character. It was exactly the opposite of this idea of confidence that they put as a higher value. In the mind of a Roman citizen, humility was not a positive virtue that you should seek after, but rather it was something to be shunned. Humility was a quality of an insignificant person, someone who's weak or poor, like a slave, but not for a self-respecting person like a Roman citizen. When we read these words about humility in our time today, we kind of have an understanding of it uh, as being positive, a positive connotation. But that's because the gospel has actually redeemed this word, so it has that. But without the influence of the life of Jesus Christ and his display of humility, these Christians in Philippi at that time would have only had an understanding of humility as being a negative virtue, a weakness. There's an interesting piece of gospel history in the mid-18th century in England, in the 1700s. Now, this is at the height of the evangelical revival that's going on, mostly through the ministry of the Methodist preachers like John Wesley and George Whitfield. There was an aristocratic woman, a woman of nobility, the Countess of Huntington. And she had heard the preaching of John Wesley and become a very strong supporter of this Methodist movement. She funded it financially, and she helped with it. She eventually hired George Whitfield to be her personal chaplain, so that when she hosted large dinner parties for the nobility of England, she would have him preach the gospel to her guests after dinner. It was like an early version of the Alpha program. Now, the Countess herself stands as an amazing testament of the saving grace of Jesus Christ as she serves her Lord humbly and faithfully for many years. However, The point that I want to make is this. When the lords and ladies of England discovered that Whitfield preached the exact same gospel message to them that he had preached to the common folk, they were astonished in disbelief. 
that the shock and horror that they had to be saved in the same manner and for the same reason as the peasants was more than what they could comprehend. So whether you're a Roman citizen or, and a Christian or an English nobility and a Christian or merely by being human, humility is really foreign to us. And it would seem that it's even more foreign when the social constructs of society reinforce it. So in chapter 1, Paul has already reminded these believers that they have a greater citizenship than Rome. It's their heavenly citizenship, which is both better and more important than their earthly one. And his whole point was, therefore, live with each other out of the mindset of Christ, out of that heavenly citizenship. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Pride destroys unity. Humility restores it. When selfish ambition and vain conceit are being lived out, you can't have unity. It has to be replaced by humility and considering others ahead of oneself. I find this an interesting struggle in my own experience the struggle with pride and humility. You know, when I see an act of true humility in another person, I admire it. I think more of them, and I desire to be that way myself. And yet I find within me this constant inner desire to put my best foot forward, to look good, to sound smart, to have it all together, or at least to pretend to have it all together, to be right, and when wrong, to defend my pride and my honor and my rights. It's just so ingrained in the human heart that unless we consciously remind ourselves that Christ is our Lord, I believe we default to this kind of position. When when we see pride in someone else, it has a negative effect on us. And, And yet, opposingly, when we see humility in someone else, we're drawn to them. It's actually refreshing to our heart. I love this Subway sandwich commercial where they're trying to promote their angle of freshness, you know, their product is fresh, through um, a clever little series of commercials where their their tagline was, this fresh moment brought to you by Subway. I should be getting some kind of advertisement dollars or at least a coupon for doing this. At any rate, in one of these commercials, there's a referee at a football game who gets a call wrong. And he announces through his microphone, I'm sorry, I completely blew that call, but don't worry, I'll make it up in the second half. (laughs) And then they say this fresh moment brought to you by Subway. Of course, the irony here is that while it totally is true that referees get it wrong, never do they turn on the microphone in a minute. So don't tell me that advertising doesn't work because I still remember Subway for that. The point is this, when we see humility in action, it's refreshing, it's inviting. We're actually drawn to it. It fosters goodwill, it brings about forgiveness and reconciliation. But when pride is there, it does the exact opposite. You've seen this, right? Like sometimes, I hate to pick on politicians, but a political leader has said something or done something. And it's wrong. It's obviously wrong. But instead of just coming out and admitting it, they choose to defend themselves. And and as they do, they're kind of digging themselves deeper and deeper into this hole, somehow thinking that people will believe their words and respect them. But in reality, it doesn't happen. In fact, the exact opposite happens. Humility is the key to maintaining and restoring unity. Humility extends grace. Humility admits our own wrong. Humility admits, I don't know it all. Humility says, I don't have to have my own way. Humility values the other person above myself and considers their need ahead of my own. 
That's what Paul is instructing them here. But it's one thing to know this truth or to hear this truth, and it's another thing to actually live it out. For that, we need motivation to do the right thing. And these next few verses that Paul is about to give them is the strongest example that he could have given them to follow. And of course, that's Jesus in his life and his death. Now, Philippians 2, 5 to 11 are some of the most theologically profound verses in all of the Bible, meaning that they teach us so much about who Jesus is in his nature that you could study these verses for a very long time and still not exhaust your understanding of them. But I don't want us to lose focus of the context and of why Paul is sharing what we're about to read. It seems very evident that Paul is about to say uh, this about Jesus to motivate the people to have the desire to strive for unity. So I don't want to lose that. So before we read these verses, let's just remember what's been going on in the context. There's opposition to the church that's creating some level of disunity. They've forgotten all about the wonderful things that they have experienced because of Christ, right? Their oneness in the Holy Spirit, where they shared encouragement and comfort and fellowship and tenderness and compassion, these kinds of things. And now they have allowed this selfish attitude this pride, this me-first type spirit to come in to the church, and it's completely disrupting their fellowship, the community of the believers, right? So he tells them that they need to replace their pride with humility and to consider others ahead of themselves. And now he's going to give them the motivation to be able to do that, which is the life of Jesus, his life and his death. So here's the example of Jesus in Philippians 2, 5 to 7. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, by using this example of Jesus coming to earth, Paul has just played like the trump card, right? Uh, the trump card on humility. There's, there's no... There's no card greater than the trump card. It's the ace of spades, and Paul's just played it. So what's he saying here? He's saying that Jesus was fully God, and then he came to earth as fully human. Jesus, who's being in very nature God, did not use that power to his own advantage when he came to earth. Instead, he made himself nothing when he became a human. The point is this. Jesus willfully gave all of that up to save us. Whatever was all included in the power, prestige, and rights of being divine, he gave up all of that for this world. Jesus, as the Son of God, who is shared in the divine nature of God for all eternity, who is shared in the full glory of God, but now, in his incarnation, the becoming human part and walking on the earth, all of that glory of his deity, it's veiled. It was not obvious to the human eye who he was in the very essence of his nature. And nor did he try to make it so. Now, Paul could have stopped right here and said, that's what humility looks like. Jesus gave up all of that to come here. So stop fighting. Be humble. Follow his example. That, that's kind of Paul's line of thinking, his argument here. But he doesn't stop at the incarnation of Jesus. He goes on to speak about his obedient, obedience to death. And so he says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Humility and obedience. That's what Jesus modeled for us. 
you know, it's a whole other level of humiliation. Uh, more than just becoming human, he had the full experience of being human, which included death. And not just an ordinary death, but to die in a manner as shameful and humiliating as a criminal's death on a Roman cross. That was the height of shame. You, you can't get any lower than that. The, the contrast here is obvious. As extreme as it is to be fully God and to not use it to his own advantage, it is also as in its extremeness of his humanity in that he faced death and he faced death on a cross. So that, that's kind of the example that Paul is saying Christ left for us. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It's the great exchange, his riches for our rags. So Paul is reminding these fighting Philippians that Jesus became poor, that they might become rich. And he accomplished all of this through the greatest expression of humility, his death on the cross. In essence, he's saying to them, so what's your problem? Why are you fighting? You know, Jesus didn't have to die. He didn't have to do this. Matthew's gospel tells us that in the garden scene when he was being arrested, Peter draws a sword to defend Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 26. And Jesus says to him, put your sword back in your place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, power withheld is a picture of humility. Divine power withheld is the greatest picture of humility. Paul goes on to show them the results of this humility that Christ displayed in his obedience. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name Jesus was a human name. But God exalted it to the highest name, his own name, which is Lord, meaning master and owner, the owner of it all. And, and there is still to come a day when no one will be able to deny that Jesus is truly the Lord of all. And it brings glory to God the Father. So Jesus accomplished this incredible victory through love, not brute force, through giving up his rights, not taking advantage of them. I think that the direct implication to this fighting church in Philippi is that those people who are using their power or their position or their influence or their intellect, whatever it might be, that they're going about it in a way that's not in keeping with what Jesus did in order to secure our salvation. And that in our salvation, he's made us one in Christ. So why? Why are they employing the flesh to solve their problems rather than keeping in step with the Holy Spirit and walking in humility and considering the needs of others ahead of their own, no matter the cost to them? You know, the Word of God says, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. That he will do what? That he will remove this mountain from before you. This opposition and disagreement and conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ it can feel like a large mountain that's impossible to move, but it's not for God. 
Because when we embrace humility, when we listen to the Holy Spirit, our hearts become soft. We forego our rights. We stop trying to promote our interests. We humble ourselves and value the other person and we look to the needs that they have above our own. And you know, when we actually do this, when we really live this out, we're, we're admitting that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we too have bowed our knee and we have confessed that he is our Lord. At this point, it's really a simple creed that is all embracing. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is my Lord. Years ago, we used to sing a song called, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. And the chorus went like this. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, we lift your name on high. You know, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying in, in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Who what? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, or every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I invite you to join me in your heart as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we battle this thing called the flesh. Our pride in our heart just seeps out so easily and it causes disunity. Remind us today that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is this that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, and that we through his poverty might become rich. Help us to learn humility, to value others above ourselves, to consider the needs of others ahead of my own. May we at Sardis Fellowship enjoy the oneness of the Holy Spirit through our experience of encouragement and comfort and fellowship and tenderness and compassion. These are the things we want to live out. So help us to do that, I ask in Jesus' name. So here's our, our three discussion questions today. One, can you think of a time that you saw a picture of humility that caused you to think, now that's a humble person? Two, how do you think pride fosters disunity while humility brings about unity? And three, how do you see the example of Jesus' life and death being a motivation in your life to be humble and to treat others above yourself? God bless you. See you next Sunday. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.